0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Big Footy Podcast. Tonight we've got some media royalty in the house tonight. He talks and writes for 1116 SCN. He's on the Mangrook Footy Show and he hosts Footyology, which everyone needs to check out. Ron Connolly, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I don't overcook over the omelette there, mate. So I don't know if I'm media royalty, but uh, no, pleasure to, pleasure to join you.
0: No, you've got some very good work out there and... Um, Yeah, doing some good things at the moment. How's the footyology stuff all going? I saw you drop another episode, I think it was today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I've I've been uh, certainly keeping me busy. Um, You know, like it's basically still a one-man operation, so uh, everything, I I don't write everything for it, but basically edit everything and publish everything. Um, Yeah, myself and Mark Fine do a an audio podcast and a, like a TV, a live Facebook, YouTube version. Um, So that's, uh, yeah, that takes a bit of organising. And uh, look, I've got a whole lot of other things on the go as well too. So I'm doing some writing for Essendon Footy Club and some uh, video stuff for them. Um, I write for Sporting News Australia. I write for the New Daily, um, and that's sort of a you know weekly wrap up, which I, I can then publish on Footyology, the website. Um, and I think I've left something out there. What is it? Oh, I'm doing uh, actually. Funnily enough, the thing I'm probably most enthusiastic about right at the moment, I'm doing. Um, a podcast with Kevin Hillier, longtime radio man and, uh, Brian Mannix, uh, former lead singer of the uncanny X-Men. And that's called rock and roll. And, uh, we discuss, uh, we all have a, a mutual interest in sport and music. So we tend to sort of talk about both in equal measures. And that's, um, that's great fun. Actually. I'm really loving doing that. We've just, we've just recorded one earlier today, actually, as I speak to you. So, um, check that out people if you want to have a listen it's uh you yeah, know yeah, it's pretty good fun
0: yeah that sounds like it's right up your alley with music and footy combined into one
1: yes yeah, i must say it's sort of like a dream well I've, over the years when i've done radio i've often said to people you know there there are a lot of um people out there that have those two mutual interests and i know um particularly when i used to uh, do stuff with Finey on sen that if we ever started talking about music, um, the text machine would go off and we'd get to- talkback calls a- a plenty. And uh, actually, last summer, when I was doing a bit of fill-in stuff uh, in Finey's old time slot, I was I actually um, was pretty indulgent, to be honest, but I, I started doing a music hour and we were having, um, you know, themes. So, uh, you know, uh, we had... Uh, songs with colours in the title or songs about days of the week and all that sort of stuff so yeah look I you know, I love music just as much as I love footy pro- uh, pretty much
0: And has, have you been able to do all these extra projects mainly since sort of I suppose uh, not working for The Age any longer or could you do all that even while working with The Age?
1: Um, oh, Look I did a bit of it I did well, I, I mean I was doing manga while I was on The Age and I did um, I, I've always done plenty of radio in conjunction with the newspaper stuff um, probably the thing you know, like it would have been, I would have found it too time consuming I think to run the website and all the things associated with that whilst being at the age, the other thing I, I probably couldn't or shouldn't have done and probably wouldn't have done is, is work for a, an AFL club because I just think it probably compromises you a bit much I mean by the same token, I mean I'm I'm still sort of operating as a a football commentator and, you know, look, I mean, that whole thing about bias and, you know, people sort of are very interested in which team you support and you're always going to sort of cop accusations about being biased towards the club you follow, but that's just a a hazard of the job, really, and I've I've long since become used to that one. So, um, yeah, look, some of it I was still doing, but, um, yeah, it's fair to say that if I was still the age, I wouldn't be able to do the as broad a range of stuff as I'm actually doing now. And funnily enough, I mean, you bump into – it's been oh, it's been nearly a year now since I um, took the package and, you know, you, you bump into people and they'll say sort of, how how are you enjoying semi-retirement? And I, <laughs> I always just giggle and say, you're kidding her. You know, like I'm, I'm busier than I've ever been really. And uh, to that end, I, I just recently uh, last week came back from 10 Days in China and um, that did take in the game in Shanghai, but it was also in part a holiday and it was a, a bad boy needed one, I've got to tell you, because it's, uh, it's a bit of an endurance test in AFL season these days if you've got you know a few fingers and a few pies, as I have.
0: Yeah, well, it's a long year because it's, it's not just the round 1 to 23-plus finals now. The the draft starts early and then pre-season <coughs> starts early, trade period. It's it's basically maybe one one and a half months off of no footy and that's about it.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I <clears throat> I did find um, uh, last year, like w- when I was at the age, um, I used to take a few weeks off immediately after the grand final and, and sort of other people, I, other people were sort of more interested in that whole trade draft period than I was, and and that that was fine with me. But uh, running this website, you know, like there is a lot of interest in it, and I, I couldn't ignore it, so. Um, Fortunately, I found a couple of very capable people to write stuff on that, but I, I still had to, you know, edit it all and publish it. and um, It was sort of good in a way because it made me sort of really stay across what was going on. So, you know, in, in regards to doing radio stuff and whatever, it just kept me across all of it. But you're quite right, you know, you get to the end of the season and then you've got the trade period, then you've got the draft, you've got the release of the fixture which always occupies a, a bit more time now and by the time you get to all that it's it's pretty much the start of December. Um and then clubs are you know, some clubs are sort of back in pre season training by the second week in January. So it's um yeah, it's a long year. It's a long year.
0: Yeah, that's um it's only gonna get longer I think. I don't think they're gonna shorten anything anytime soon. Well um... The first topic I want to ask you about is the one that's probably going to always be the most controversial. It's the new MRO system. It's been in the spotlight a fair bit this year. How do you think it's going from a consistency point of view? Uh,
1: look, I'd say... Um, I don't know if people would agree. With look, to me, it's those things don't vary that much. I mean, I, I say this for the standard of umpiring as well. I don't think it necessarily gets a lot better or, or much worse. And so... It's never gonna be it's never gonna to be totally consistent, you know, because ultimately you're coming down to well, now you you're coming down to basically one person's interpretation of it. Although, you know, admittedly there's sort of room for manoeuvre if the AFL don't like a particular ruling, but um, those judgment calls, you're never gonna get complete consistency and um what I do like about the new system is the uh, the time aspect of it. You know, just the fact that they're dealing with cases immediately so we don't get, you know, for there's something happening in a Friday night game, we don't get three days of uh, speculation before we finally see what the penalty is. Um, <clears throat> I think there's been, you know, there's been some sort of interesting ones this year. Um, not so much uh, because of the the way the system's changed, but just because they've been sort of – what's the word I'm looking for? Not your garden variety sort of offences, you know, like, for instance, the umpire-touching stuff, you know. So, in a way, Michael Christian's been a bit unlucky to cop some of that sort of stuff, and that's always going to polarise views as well. And, I mean, like, for what it's worth, my view on the umpire-contact thing is that I think – you know, I, I sort of wish there'd been a little more, um, uh, not flexibility, but just, I don't know, common sense perhaps, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I've got to say I was, I was sort of a bit betwixt and between with the Willie Rowley one the other day because I don't think, you know, I, I would have been sort of mortified if that had a, attracted a suspension and yet you look at the Kerno ones and you sort of think, well, okay, if that's sort of setting the precedent, well, doesn't, Rioli have to get suspended as well and I understand that view but I mean look the bottom line for me with all those things is um, I guess the application of common sense you know and and I think I, I think this new system and that, look it's you know it's it's not a dramatically different system but I think it does. Perhaps introduce a greater element of flexibility in terms of both the penalty um, and how cases are dealt with. So I think that's good. Because I think the initial introduction of the whole, you know, match review panel system and, and the allocation of penalty points and, and that sort of stuff, it's very hard to make, you know, the, the vast array of offences that can happen in AFL football all fit neatly into little categories and I think as time went on we real, you know we sort of saw that more and more that um you know two two incidents that uh superficially could attract the same penalty can be dramatically different the other thing that always worried me um was and this isn't so much about the sort of system it, it's about um it's about how these things are judged, and that is the, um, I guess, the uh, oh, not demarcation, the sort of struggle between intent versus consequences. And, um, you know, I think sometimes the uh, barometer has sort of tipped too far in, in, in favour of penalties being delivered because of the consequences of an incident rather than the intent. And in a game that's as sort of fast and as physical as our game, you know, it's quite possible for something with, uh, you know, an incident that has been um, an incident that has occurred with no great malicious intent, to end up causing greater consequences than one that might have been more malicious, if that makes sense. So yeah,
0: I reckon that's where the big frustration comes in from everyone mm -hmm. watching it is. The intent versus outcome. I mean, there's so many incidents where you're like, okay, he's tried to clean the bloke up and he hasn't connected, luckily, for the play's safety, but why should that draw no penalty to a bloke who's injured someone in in an act of football and, you know, cops two weeks, which is the the confusing
1: part? Yeah, no, I agree with that. But even going back sort of to the old tribunal days prior to the match review system, uh, one thing I can remember, I mean, geez, I was you know, covering the old tribunal back in the 1980s. And even then, where once upon a time there was um, enough reports being lodged for, you know, attempted striking, um, that sort of went by the wayside. And so the intent perhaps got lost a bit, uh, you know, as long ago as 30 years ago. And um, it just seems that in the, in, you know, the the more modern era that the, there's been a greater premium put on consequences. And I sort of understand that to a degree, but like I'm saying, you know, in a game like footy, um, there's a lot of scope for things to happen, you know, uh, that that aren't necessarily the result of some sinister intent on the part of the guy that causes the damage. So, look, it's a really... Look, Michael Christian's got a really tough gig and the AFL have got a tough gig, so you're never going to get... Perfection—you're never going to get complete consistency, but um, you know, some most of the changes that they've made, I think, make sense. And certainly, I think the greatest advantage of this new system is is simply that it's more practical, it's more user friendly, and and you know, we deal with these things immediately rather than having them fester for days and days. Because I've got oh look, you may come to this, but you know, one of my great bugbears about the media these days is the amount of time that's taken up talking about things that are sort of peripheral to the actual game and the tribunal is less one of them but there's a lot of speculation that goes on about what might happen rather than sort of the analysis of things that actually have happened and that's a bit of a it's becoming a bit of a hobby horse of mine as a grisly old media veteran I -hmm. suppose.
0: Uh, one of the, the most controversial decisions we've had so far was uh, Nick Nat Newey getting suspended for that tackle um, obviously junior yep. care has been a massive theme for the MRO this year and in even previous years as well what was your thoughts on the suspension from for Nick Nat?
1: Yeah and no, I wasn't happy with that one at all um, to me that, that set a very dangerous precedent you know because I mean they happen, those things happen in a split second you know a fraction of a second and Um, The really worrying part out of that was, I think, um, was Brian Gleason, the the AFL advocate, basically saying that, you know, the duty of care sort of implied that a player had to assess the size and height difference between he and the player he was trying to bump or or tackle. Um, And you just can't do that. You know, you're talking about a fraction of a second. You can't sort of... Yeah, well, what's a guy supposed to do? Sort of develop a mental roster of, uh, you know, well, this guy's my height and weight, so I can do this, or he's, you know, uh, 7 centimetres and 10 kilos lighter than me, so I can't I can't do that. You know, that's ridiculous. And yeah. um, I, I didn't think there was any sort of malicious intent in what Nat Nui did at all. So, yeah, no, I, I didn't think that was a good one.
0: No, definitely not, and that's where it comes back to the intent versus outcome, because I agree, there was no malice in that tackle at all, um, and look, we don't like blokes being knocked out, but football's a contact sport at the end of the day, and sometimes things happen, unfortunately.
1: Well, it happens, and, and you can have, um, you know, like, there the could be what is a fairly minor sort of uh, contact made, and then, you know, a guy falls and, and hits his head and, and is concussed that way, and... and where do you draw the line here? Um, so whilst I sort of understand the principle of duty of care, I think it's it's pretty um, perilous to sort of apply the same principles you'd apply out in the out in the street um, that you would out in a football game, because not not everyone <laughs> in the streets are running around trying to bump the hell out of each other, you know?
0: Yeah. Now, yeah, they needed a bit more common sense with that one. Uh, what about the general rules of the game currently? Do you feel like the game's becoming too complicated for fans to even understand, let alone umpires and international viewers?
1: Um, I, don't know if, I, I don't know if I'd use the word complicated. I, I'd certainly use the word congested. Um, yeah, I I've, I must admit I, I've sort of had more and more concerns about how the game looks and and the number of... Uh, pretty sort of dour, scrappy, unattractive games we see. And I, I try not to be too much of a dinosaur about it. And I do sort of accept the argument that we see so much more football now than we used to. Um, you know, it's only, you know, if you have a look at the entirety of, of, of the competition, you know, it's only been a, a very recent timeframe that we've been able to see every game every week. Um, so I I accept that argument that there were plenty of bad games back in the 80s and 90s as well but I do um, the congestion worries me and and the the low scoring worries me too and I think it's very easy for people to say oh you know what's wrong with low scores if a game's tight and tough it can be thrilling and yes it can be but um, I don't think you can have too much of that and I think you know if you ask me to sort of nominate what I think the peak uh, period of, of Australian football was aesthetically, I'd probably say the early to mid-90s, because I think we had a, you know, we were starting to become a uh, full-time professional then. Um, fitness standards were, you know, not a, not a lot less than they are now. Um, the tactics had already sort of infiltrated the game. Um, you know, we had things like flooding and stuff was starting to happen, and yet, we still had pretty high scores and we had, um, you know, some of the greatest spearheads in the history of the game. I mean, if you go back to, it's funny, I feel like 1993 is sort of the peak year of footy almost. And it's remarkable how many people seem to agree with this. But when you think about it, and I always have to qualify this by saying, no, it's not just because Essendon won a premiership, the, The, the quality of footy in 1993 is, as I remember at the time thinking, what an amazing season. And I still think that now. And, and you go back and, and think in terms of spearheads, you had, you know, Lockett, Ablett, Dunstall, all at their peak, but it wasn't just them. You know, you had Sumich, you had Modra, um, you had Kernahan, you know, kicking 70, 80 goals, you had Carey start to become well that was probably his breakout year in terms of becoming a superstar um and scores were scores were just so much higher than they are now and and the the one single statistic that worries me most about current football is that one which is that the last four seasons have been the lowest scoring since 1970 now that's nearly 50 years, and it's four years. So you're not just talking about what could be a one-off, you're talking about a repeated pattern there. And that 1970 time frame is an interesting one too, because in 69 you had the introduction of out-of-bounds on the full. And that was a pretty dramatic sort of change to the rules. And that really sort of upped the scoring ante. And, um, you know, I, it makes me really think that we are going to have to see something you know of the same scale in terms of changing the the rules of the game to get to get not not all the way back to where we were but just to restore the balance a bit between defence and attack because there's no doubt in my mind it's now been skewed far too much in in favour of the defensive elements of the game and all the tweaks that they've made in order to try and do this haven't worked you know the interchange Reduction hasn't worked. Um, you know, getting rid of third man up—that was supposed to be an aid to clearing congestion. That didn't work. Um, the protected area, well, nut nah, hasn't really had a had a, a major impact. The um, tighter interpretation and deliberate out of bounds. Well, I remember looking at the stats at this the end of last year. It certainly reduced um, boundary throw-ins, but again, didn't really open the game up. And I think that whole thing about Um, you know, keep cutting back the interchange numbers. I I just wonder if that's a bit of a false premise anyway. I mean, there's just as... you, You could argue just a stronger case that the fatigue won't open the game up. It'll actually slow it down and clog it up further with everyone dropping men behind the ball and just trying to outlast each other rather than sort of go the other way and sort of outscore each other. So I don't think Tweak's... going to be enough I think that these changes have become uh, sort of embedded in the way we play and 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 I think that some of the I mean there seems to be two popular suggestions for changing this one is going to 16 men aside which I doubt would happen but you know I'm sort of open to that one I don't mind I've come around on this I actually don't mind the idea of of limited zoning and people hear zoning and they freak out. They think, oh, we're going to be netball or whatever. But, I mean, if you're just doing this at stoppages or, as someone suggested the other day, even just at centre bounces, you know, anything it takes just to clear some of those players away from where the ball is, I think is worth, at the very least, sort of experimenting with in in the pre-season competition.
0: Yeah, they that already was a very long answer. Their... Sorry, <laughs> no, that's right. They already actually do that in their TAC Cup. I think at every up yeah. around the ground they've got to have. I think it's two forwards or two defenders in each of the fifties. So yeah, and that, yeah. that is a good method to open up the ground. But yeah, you you wouldn't want to take it much further than that, so it doesn't enter Nepal territory. Um... Well, not
1: not immediately. I think you know, I think you I, I think you make small changes and see how you go, but. I do think we're at a stage where they have to have to try something. And if you think about pre-season, some of the things we have tried in that, I mean, there's been, you know, there's been so many people forget, but you know, we we experimented with uh, the ball coming back into play off a point post and last yeah. touch, you know, out of bounds, um, nine points for a goal outside 50. I mean, they're all pretty radical. So why wouldn't you try something like zoning as well?
0: Yeah, exactly right. It seems a a pretty logical step to take. And I'm not sold on the reduced interchanged either from an injury standpoint. I think it's only going to enhance soft tissue injuries just with the sheer workload the guys are under now.
1: Well, that's what a lot of club medical staff believe. And I know um, Collingwood is one club that was sort of vehemently against that on on those grounds. Uh, I think Rodney Ede's another one who's sort of said... It, it's it's not going to do what they say. It'll actually do the reverse. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we don't want to risk more injuries. And like I was saying before, I'm, you know, greater fatigue, there's a sort of view that that will make the game more open and, and more attacking. I, I think it could actually clog it up more and make it more defensive because <laughs> everyone will be too buggered to actually become attacking.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, One of the other big issues we've had this week and uh, being a Richmond supporter myself, it was in our game was the goal review uh, decision against Jack Higgins where Tom Hickey marked it. Well, what looked like over the line on one bit of footage and on the line in another, how do you see the goal review footage going? And do you have any thoughts on that particular incident?
1: Yeah. Oh, well that clearly they got it wrong. Um, It made me wonder, you know, it sort of made me think, and it's a similar thing with cricket. Really? The, The floor often tends to be not the actual technology, but the interpretation of the technology. And clearly, reading between the lines with this case, it just sounds like they rushed it too much because, um, you know, Steve Hawking's sort of been at them to speed it up. And, um, you know, it looks like they didn't sort of look at all available angles. Um, The worry for most sports, I think, that have introduced video technology is that it always ends up Um, what's the phrase I'm looking for exceeding the brief you know because when when we first introduced this or when it was first talked about and that was after the Tom Hawkins goal in the 2009 grand final I mean that's you know when when we introduced it it was basically talking about shots that may have hit a post Um, then you sort of go into that territory of oh well shots touched on the line now those two examples yeah fair enough but when we start looking at you know has a guy touched the ball sort of 25 30 meters out from goal I, I i'm not sure it should be sort of extending that far and it just keeps sort of creeping into to more decisions what was it there was one um oh geez i'm just trying to remember now it was one of the early games in the season where
0: it was, uh, the port, kangaroo, Kangaroos in Sydney had one as well where McVeigh uh,
1: touched one. Yeah, there was a Port Adelaide one, though, where the, the player, um, it was it was whether the argument was about whether he'd marked it or, or whether it had touched the point post. Um, and he was he was prevented from playing on, basically, because they went to a video review. And he ended up kicking the goal anyway, but... You see this, you know, you see, you've seen it with soccer, um, certainly with cricket. You see the technology comes in and then it sort of begins to influence more and more decisions and it becomes a bit of a, um, a Pandora's box. So what do they do about it? Uh, I think having introduced it, it's pretty hard to eliminate it. Um, the very first thing they need to do, surely, is sort of standardise the, the equipment at all grounds, which... I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. You know, there are some venues that have inferior resources in that regard to others. um, And the process that the video reviewers uh, undertake should be standardised. And you should surely be looking at every available angle before you arrive at your decision. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure how they get out of it, to be honest. And I, you know, like I... I like the fact that we have greater scope to get a decision right, but, uh, you know, I, I think the the bottom line for me is that the technology in AFL footy terms at least still isn't quite on the money to be able to do that, particularly those ones where, you know, a guy has a shot at goal and they're claiming it's touched and then, you know, you're looking at 500 replays and have his fingers bent back or not and... I've got to admit, often on the replay, they'll show one and the commentators will say, oh, you can see his fingers move back. And I'm looking at it thinking, I can't see his fingers move back, you know. So, ultimately, you're still coming down to a um, a human's judgment, aren't you? So, the technology ends up playing second fiddle to a, a human judgment anyway. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of uh, – I'm not really giving you an answer here. I'm sort of spitballing as we speak. But no, it, it's – right. um, They've introduced it, and I think uh, it's, yes, it's it, it may have actually created more problems than it's solved, I guess is what yeah, I'm trying to say. I
0: agree, especially like you say, with the ones where they're touched in play, because we don't have those camera frame rates to slow it down, because it could even be the boot that clips the player's fingers, not even the ball but you'll never yeah. know because it's that half a frame, too late kind of thing
1: Yeah, yeah, well there was one uh, there was one, the Sydney going down at Geelong the other week too, that I think it was Isaac Keeney, and people weren't sure if the um, bit of play that they were actually ruling on was had the ball come off his calf and gone over for a goal or, or had it been uh, Will Hayward. And I remember looking at Will Hayward and thinking, oh, he's, the ball's definitely over the line before he's even kicked it, but they ended up awarding the goal to Hayward. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. I wouldn't like to be doing that job, but I, I do think they need to invest more resources and time into getting it right yeah
0: absolutely uh what about umpires uh, as the unit as a whole i guess do you think they're a bit of a protected species too much when it comes to i suppose coaches wanting to make comments or (coughs) question a decision should coaches have free reign to be able to air their you know questions without risking a please explain or a fine from the afl um uh
1: yes and no i mean i i think yeah i think in a respectful way, of
0: course.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that they can't do that. I, I think, um, you know, I think if you're sort of philosophically questioning um, the way a rule was interpreted, I, I think that should be okay. It becomes difficult if you're talking about isolated incidents because you sing, you are singling one umpire out, and um, I, I guess you know they've always got to be conscious of being able to. Um, attract people to umpire and if you talk to you know any any sort of one who's involved in umpiring at a lower level you know they'll tell you that they have enormous problems sort of you know both attracting and retaining umpires because the amount of grief that they they receive um and often you know they're kids these are teenagers and they sort of they're trying to umpire footy and getting abused by you know, grown men and, and women and sort of thinking, geez, you know, I don't I don't need this. Is it really worth it? So I, I get it from that point of view. But I, I think, yeah, if you can do it in a respectful way, uh, I, yeah, I, I think perhaps sometimes I can be a bit heavy-handed in terms of punishing coaches that make comments.
0: Fair enough. And um, the expansion clubs, obviously we've got Gold Coast and GWS – um, GWS traveling a lot better than the Suns do you think there's ever going to come a time where the AFL might concede that Gold Coast was a failed idea and should have they looked at Tasmania as the first option
1: uh, yes they should have um, definitely and I said that at the time and I was hardly alone um, I don't think they'll admit defeat on them I don't think they can afford to um, you know there's an element of pride about it which you know they'd never say that but uh that would be a major backtrack. Um, and look, I mean, I guess they'll, they'll probably use the example of Sydney, and it took Sydney a good 20 years to to really become firmly entrenched. I think as a um, you know a entrenched in the Sydney sporting consciousness and landscape, I suppose. And there were two or three times along that journey where the club could easily have folded you know i reckon I, I got sent up to sydney at least three times in the um 80s and late 80s and 90s you know during various financial crises and and they'll say well there's a good enough example that these things can take decades but i think the the um the issue in the most recent expansion is that you've had two clubs come in you know in successive years and that has taken to eight the number of clubs outside the Victorian base, with which you know, if you whether you like it or not, the competition sort of started in that backyard, and it's a lot, and it requires a lot of attention, a lot of upkeep. Obviously, more so those ones in non-traditional football environments, and whilst that's happening. And we're getting more and more evidence of this now. There are areas of that heartland where the game is really starting to struggle. And um, as we've read and heard about a lot this year, you know Tasmania is in in desperate trouble. Um, you know, both in terms of senior competitions over there and and um, junior talent coming through. I think what is it two Tassie kids drafted in the last couple of years or something i mean that's you know from a state that produced the likes of peter hudson and ian stewart and daryl baldock i mean it's just ridiculous and um i think that applies to victorian clubs as well um having said all that i I mean there is a bit of a safety net there for for afl clubs at least in terms of the massive broadcast revenues they've got now and um you know i know it must really irk people who barracked for Fitzroy that had they been able to hold on just another three or four years, they probably, you know, they probably would have been okay. They would have been looked after. But it's a very fine line, I think, between uh, spreading the gospel and making sure that, um, you know, where the game is strongest uh, is paid enough attention. And I think during those sort of developmental years with Gold Coast and GWS, they, they sort of took their eye off the ball a bit in terms of development, um, obviously in Tassie, but in, in country areas too. You know, I've, I've been reading a bit about the, the struggle that country leagues now have and, and even suburban leagues. And, um, you know, these are the guys who, people participating at those levels, juniors, obviously. I mean, these are the people we're hoping will be the the AFL players of the next generation. And, and, you know, is that pool big enough now? Is the level of talent enough now? And, you know, I know there's plenty of people who will look at the talent coming through now and say, well, whilst the cream on on top is still pretty attractive, um, there's not that same depth of of talent that we used to have. And there's enough evidence of that even on the AFL list now. I, I definitely think that, one of the consequences of that expansion as well as equalisation. And I'm not saying equalisation is a bad thing, but the last couple of years have sort of convinced me a bit that whilst we have the most even competition we've ever had, how it's occurred is that the bottom clubs have become more competitive, but it's been at the expense of the clubs at the top. So I'm not sure the best teams now are as good as the best teams of a decade ago.
0: Just moving to the Tasmania one as well, is the relocation of an existing AFL club something that will ever potentially happen? Is that part of an answer, or will <clears> that just never occur?
1: Oh, look, I, I wouldn't say definitely not, but I I, I think history suggests that it's unlikely. Uh, same with mergers, you know. I mean, we're, we're just... yeah. Well, I'm sort of qualifying my own comment here. I mean, I, having sort of covered pretty closely what happened in... 1996. You know the answer then seemed to be very definitive that people are just too passionate about their clubs and they they wouldn't let that happen. They'd always find a way to preserve them. But you know maybe maybe and it pains me to say this maybe the um, generations coming through won't be quite as emotionally wedded to those clubs. You know so they won't find it as painful. A prospect and they might not be prepared to go to the same lengths to save those clubs. Therefore, they may be more amenable to a relocation or a merger. But I'd, I'd still think the odds are probably against it, to be honest.
0: Fair enough. Well, one way or another, hopefully something helps um, the Tasmanian footy community soon because, yeah, we don't want to see them struggling. no. Um, the last couple of years have seen a couple of interesting premiers, I mean, my team being one of them. We obviously had a good yeah. year in 2017. Do you view the success of Richmond as the beginning of a dynasty of sorts, or was it a case of the right plan, right place, right time, kind of like the Hawks of '08 and even Dogs the year before?
1: Um, yeah, look, I'd probably lean more towards the, the latter. Um and that's, you know, that's no reflection on the Tigers. I, I, think, um, I think it's going to be harder to Uh, have a sustained era of success because of that, because of what I just said before, because the competition is tighter throughout and because I don't think the best teams are quite as good as they were. Um, I said a little while ago on, uh, I think I said it on SEN, wherever I said it, I remember I unleashed a tidal wave of hatred among Hawthorne people when I suggested that the Geelong of 07-08, 7 08, and, you know, I know they lost to Hawthorne in 08. I thought that they would beat the Hawthorne sides of uh, 13, 14, 15. Um, and, you know, there's no disrespect to those Hawthorne sides, but I, I just think there were some absolute stars in those Geelong sides. I'm not sure even the Hawthorne sides of that three-peat had quite as many. What they were, were a, was a, a fantastic team. And in a way, that's good. I mean, I, I'm thinking about the Bulldogs and, and Richmond now. What what those two clubs both did was to really bring themselves together for a, a consummate team performance. So I think, um, even though the Tigers had you know Martin, Koch, and Rewalt and Rance, and the durability of those players was a a big factor. But I, I think the premiership sides now are going to be less sort of star driven and it's going to be more about having an evenness across the the whole side and across the whole list. And that's what the Bulldogs had in twenty sixteen. You know, so much so that they were able to cope with a, a pretty shocking run of injuries. Um it yeah, was think, amazing how they did
0: that.
1: Well it was. It was and and it's interesting that they haven't coped nearly as well with injuries since then. So Um, something's gone amiss there. But I I think, um, you know, as great as Dusty was last year and Rance is a superstar and Cochin had a great year, but I would have thought just as important for the Tigers was, uh, you know, Sean Greig perhaps going up another cog and, um, you know, Nick Flossman playing some pretty good footy and even a a guy like, uh, you know, Camden McIntosh. And then blokes like, you know, who would have thought 12 months ago that you'd have guys like, Dan Butler and Jason Kistagner playing important parts in a premiership side, and even um, you know even the fact that they had three guys in that premiership side who came hadn't even played a senior game between them until about what round twenty two or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's pretty remarkable. Um, so I think the the rules on what it takes to win a, a flag have been rewritten slightly, and I think um, that's one element to it. And I think the other element and I'll keep coming back to this, is that perhaps you don't have to be quite as good to win a flag now. And the evenness means that more and more, I think, you know, you're going to have a side that plays its absolute best football at the perfect time that um, that ends up winning a flag. And that, that can be, that has its good elements. Um, it has some negative elements too, in my view, which is that, I like the season to be, I like the premiership team to be uh, an accurate reflection of the season that's taken place. And please, if you're hearing this, Richmond supporters, absolutely no disrespect. I have no problem at all saying that Richmond were, proved themselves to be the best team of 2017. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, those Brisbane sides, 15 years down the track, we look at Brisbane of 0-1, 2 and 3 and say, well, they were just, they were so dominant and they were so strong, but didn't actually finish on top of the ladder in any of those years. You know, they were certainly thereabouts, but they weren't categorically the best team in any of those years. So that's been going on for a, a fair while, but I think it might be even even more the case now. And that's the, the, the positive of that is that it means that, um, you know, as the Bulldogs did, you can finish in the lower half of the eight and perhaps win a flag, whereas, you know, until then... I was certainly in that camp that thought there is absolutely no way you can win a flag unless you finish top four.
0: Yeah, there was always that stigma that you were just literally making up numbers if you were not in the top four. So it is good to have that bit of hope if you're one of those teams outside the four that you've still got a chance.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I suppose we're almost halfway through 2018 and the Eagles look like the team to beat based on current form. Do you think they have the right formula going this year with the, <clears throat> the two key forwards in Kennedy and Darling and then the two big ruckmen with Nick Nat and Lysett?
1: Well, sort—I of, I must admit—I sort of hope they do, um, because I think it's great. I th- what am I trying to say? I think it's great that there's an alternative to what we saw, say perhaps last year and the year before, that is succeeding at this level. So you know, they're they're um, a longer kicking team, like you say. They've they've gone sort of back towards a focus on key forwards, and not just key forwards. They've got height all over the ground but it's mobile height I guess which is sort of up the ante a little bit more and they're still doing those things uh, you know the, the areas where they have really improved um, well, one of them obviously is defensive pressure particularly midfield you know they they were ranked really poorly the last couple of years for contestable and for clearances and all those sort of hard indicators and they're, they're really holding their own in that at the moment but I, I just think I'd I'd hate to see a competition where a side wins the flag and every other side that's aspiring to do that religiously follows that formula because then you you don't get any sort of variation in the way sides play Um, and that I I sort of feel like football as a whole in the modern era has often become a little bit too homogenised and I think the Eagles do have an obvious point of difference so I'm not saying – that's not saying, you know, I desperately want them to win the flag, but I think it would be great if you had a grand final played between, a, you know, a contested um, forward pressure team versus another that can build from the back and prefers kicking over handball. You know, it's sort of like um, watching a Wimbledon final between Borg and McEnroe. You know, you've got a, a serve and volleyer and a baseline player. And, um, you know, tennis perhaps has become a bit same-ish in that way too So the more sides we can have playing distinctive and different styles of footy I reckon the, the better for the game
0: Yeah, I mean, whatever they're doing, they're doing right and really effective They've been unbelievable this year uh, As with every season, there's always some bolters and some sliders Who do you, who do you have pegged down as a bolter and a slider so far?
1: Oh, well, I mean, they're, you know, well, the Eagles are a bolter. I, I didn't pick them in the eight. I picked them to fall out of the eight. So I guess the other obvious one is North Melbourne. Um, and it's funny, you know, people keep saying to me, oh, you said all off-season that North would be better than people thought. And and I did, but I still didn't have the courage to put them any higher than I think 14th on my pre-season later and and they've been remarkable i mean the fact that they're what are they six four um you know i think probably more people have not had them penciled in as as wooden spooners and and they've been fantastic and um you know I, i just felt with them at the end of last year that they they were better than their position indicated i mean they won six games but they lost five games by a total of 14 points and you know, that's that's effectively three kicks away from an 11-win season rather than a six-win season. So I didn't think it would take that much to make them a significantly better team. And, um, you know, you've had the leaders there have really been terrific. You know, Ben Cunnington, um, uh, Sean Higgins has been great for them, uh, Jack Siebel. You've had veterans like Jared Waite and, at the other end, Scotty Thompson sort of stand up and... Give valuable support to both Ben Brown and, and Robbie Tarrant. I think some of the guys that had played a bit of footy already for them have improved again, and that's often overlooked. You know, that sort of gradual improvement by players who've been in the in the on the list for two or three years. Um, so they, you've got to say that they've really surprised people. Um, beyond that. Uh, it's probably the teams up there at the moment are probably the sort of teams you'd expect. Um, Alternately, you know, I think Essendon clearly has been a a disappointment in terms of the level of expectation, although, who knows, you know, their last two weeks have been a vast improvement, so maybe they're turning that around a bit. Um, GWS have obviously uh, performed below expectations. Um, Again, you know, they've had a fair few injuries to cope with, so maybe there's still time for them. Um, but they're probably the major surprises, I think.
0: Yeah, you're right. Essendon have been um, pretty good the last few weeks. <coughs> I wouldn't be shocked if they beat us this week, to be honest, at Dreamtime at the G. Just remarkable they get rid of Mark Neill. I'm not sure if it's just pure coincidence or not, but their form just turned around um, straight away, virtually.
1: Yeah, and it's, look, it's really unfortunate for Mark because, you know, it's... Um, People sort of put two and two together, but I think that was as much about—and I'm not saying this is right or wrong—but as much about a, a circuit breaker. And yeah, look, I, I, I think the players um, really sort of felt like they would had a rocket under them with with that decision. Um, and I, you know, I guess whether that makes them think, well, you know, that could be us next, or um, yeah, I, I think they—I think they might have just thought it was going to come it was all going to come a little bit easier than it did, um, you know, given that they'd made finals last year and recruited you know, three pretty decent senior players to bring into the mix. I must say, I had, look, I put them eighth on my ladder, so I thought they'd, they'd play finals again, but I'd, I wasn't convinced that they were going to be this sort of... Yeah, necessarily be this top four or, or premiership team that, that some were predicting, and I think that had a fair bit to do with the midfield... I uh, just got my doubts about whether that's quite deep enough or quite good enough at the end of the day. But the last two weeks, I think the key for them has probably been, um, you know, three of the most important players: Heppel, Zaharakis, and Merritt, uh, rediscovering some pretty good form. And you know, you can't you can't argue with your your best players playing their best footy. It certainly makes a huge difference. So yeah, that's,
0: they've still got that's, some good players to come back in too.
1: They have, they have, and um, yeah, it's just it's funny because Danaher and Hurley have both been out, but they've looked a little more stable, I think. Um, so, look, you know, often these things aren't easily explained by one or two factors. It's it can be a combination of a lot of little things that add up to um, you know a greater sum and the various parts.
0: Now, you mentioned before about the, the want-to-see high-scoring games. It's obviously a lot more enjoyable. Based on that, how have you seen the progression of AFLW? Do you think they need to take any further steps to help improve that, whether it be smaller sizes of the field or reduced numbers, or where do you think that's all at?
1: Um, look, I'm... Yeah, I, I, I personally wouldn't be altering... Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be reducing the ground size. Uh, you know, I know they're going with two West, but that's probably as big an alteration as i'd want to make and i I just think you have to there has to be a sort of acceptance that it it is a different product than the men's game and that you know there are certain physiological differences between the genders which mean that you know the, the the women aren't going to necessarily kick as long or run as fast or 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 be you have the same strength and and that leads to a a different looking game but you just have to you, basically what i'm saying is you've got to you can't compare the two products you know it's like apples and oranges and i've had a, a daughter who played several years of junior football and um i loved it you know and i you just have to sort of accept okay well we're not going to see football played in the same way that we see the men and junior uh, and boys play it, it, it is a different game. But I still think it's a it's a good game. And um, I, th- I thought the second AFLW season probably didn't start as well as the first one, but I thought it finished just as well. I thought it really built momentum. And I think the longer that the women involved in AFLW have access to those elite facilities and elite coaching, and the more time that they're spending, around those clubs and in a professional environment, I mean, it stands to reason that they're only going to get better and the standard's going to continue to improve. And um, I think it's great. I I think you cannot deny the importance of opening that pathway to half the population. And the whole game benefits out of that. It means that, um, you know, we're likely to have more girls and women um, you know, interested in watching both the men's and women's version of the product, and that has to be a good thing. And we, we want to be seen as an inclusive game that is open to anyone. And the AFL has always prided itself on the level of uh, female interest in terms of spectators. And and now, you know, those people who are interested on that level can also aspire to have their own playing careers. And I, I think that's fantastic. And look, there was always going to be some negativity from some quarters, but uh, I think, you know, you just, the people running the comp and the people with vested interests in it just have to grit their teeth and see that through because I I think, um, you know, we've had two seasons and I think the the pros have far, far outweighed the cons. So um, I wouldn't like to see them tinker with the rules or anything to do with it in order to make it more like the men because I don't think it needs to be more like the men.
0: And especially from a grassroots level, the participation rate has absolutely boomed. Uh, I mean, I'm in the southeast area, and clubs are, are getting adding three or four new girls teams each year. It's unbelievable how much it's taken off.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And um, I saw this with my own daughter. I mean, when she started playing with um, with her club, you know, they had uh, they had one team and they didn't even have change rooms. You know, they're playing in the ground and. Getting changed on the side of the ground and stuff, you know. And now there's several teams, and they've got their own sheds, and um, and I hear this story all over the place, and I, I think it's it's fantastic, you know. It's um, you can't deny that uh, they they deserve to have the same opportunities that the men do. Yeah, or, absolutely. You know, I, I think you can deny that, but it probably makes you a bit of a misogynist if you do.
0: <laughs> no, it's it's getting huge, and it's only going to get bigger as the years go on, which is good. Uh, now, one of the biggest sagas that took the footy world by storm was the, the Essendon uh, drug saga, uh, which keeps somehow rearing its head as the years go on. Joe yep. Watson recently came out and claimed that Essendon were negligent over the term, well, the period of the scandal. Um, have yep. any, to your knowledge, have any Essendon players ever given explanations as to why they failed to notify SADA of the injections they were getting? It just seemed like it, it was a pretty volatile bit of information that seemed to be left off the
1: forms. Yeah, look, I, I think the, um, the, there are that many different theories you hear about everything involved with this story. And, um, you know, I know people sort of choose to take the most sinister possible explanation of them. I've, I've had various things told to me about what happened with those forms. Um, one explanation was that not even all players filled them out. Um, another was that players regularly didn't list everything that they were given. Um, now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I think that whole, uh, you know, one of the things that emerged during that whole saga was the, um, I guess, the, that the, you know, ASADA and the, um, the regulatory bodies for this stuff in Australia weren't run nearly as professionally as, as people believe they had. Um, you know, there was a period there where I think ASADA the uh, sort of time delays in, in getting through the appeal process and getting their briefs together and whatever. And it was it was about lack of resources and lack of staff. Um, so there was a real, I'm sort of talking big picture here, but every element, in, in my view, every element about that whole um, doping scandal saga. See, I, I use the word saga and people say, oh, you know, you deliberately not calling it a scandal, you know, you're trying to gloss over it. No, I'm not. It's just a, a phrase of choice. Look, I I think there is certainly a chance they ingested illegal substances. I, I think there's certainly a chance that what they ingested wasn't illegal. Um, I think that um, Essendon, as Job says, I think Essendon were uh, lamentably negligent in their duty of care. I mean, the, the whole Idea to begin with seemed pretty sort of half baked um, and not very well thought through, and then not very well managed. And that was the greatest breakdown. Obviously, that um, the coaching staff and the football t- department entrusted a couple of cowboys with looking after this <laughs> this program, which needed very close supervision, and uh, it, it wasn't given such. Um, And the football guys were negligent for not keeping an eye on that. You know, obviously the Cowboys, Stephen Dank and Dean Robinson were negligent in, you know, not not being across, having a decent level of knowledge about the substances they were working with. The record keeping was slipshod. Now, people, I I understand why people look at all this and they sort of spot, um, you know, sinister intent. I, I tend to think, and I'm trying to desperately think of that phrase and I can't, but I, I tend to think if, you, if you've got a choice between a, a conspiracy and a stuff-up, that nine times out of ten it's a stuff-up. And I think AFL clubs and AFL football generally is a lot like that and t- I, I reckon in that regard the, the, um, the whole Essendon thing was a, a real eye-opener, it, even you know, in terms of the AFL administration, that it, it thought it could sort of manage an outcome And in a way, sort of the, both the arrogance of that and the naivety of that to think that it could, um, hang on a sec, (coughs) sorry, Um, to think that it could sort of subvert the due process that had to happen and try and sort of manufacture an outcome that was more convenient. Um, And then it began to panic when the microscope was put on it. And so then started to backtrack on on um, deals that it had already done. And then Asada itself, um, you know, seemed to uh, having to save face. So going to WADA and then WADA going to the Court of Arbitration of Sport. And then even down to the start of the whole thing, you know, the blackest day in sports stuff. There you had a, a federal government in desperate electoral trouble trying to cover its ass by pulling what it thought would be a popular politically popular um cause there's all these agendas littered all over this story so i know i've strayed completely from the question you actually asked me then but the you know the, the the thing with the forms like i i don't i understand why people think oh you know that that sort of indicates that they definitely were hiding something i'm not convinced it does because i think there was so much incompetence and poor management and poor decision making and again you know like people say well these people want their cake and eat it too on this thing with the players because they always the same people who say well why didn't the players ask questions and they should have been responsible and blah 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 are the same people who turn around uh when it suits them and say oh these young men you know the club didn't look after these young men well which way do you want it are these adults who should have been responsible for what went in their bodies or are they innocent young men who the club has betrayed? And I sort of think a bit both ways, you know? So I know that we're people listening to this and get, like, oh, good on you, Connolly, you know, you're sort of making excuses for them or whatever. I'm actually not, you know, and I, and I actually certainly accept the possibility that whatever they took was actually illegal. Um, but no one can categorically say that. And I think there's every chance just as much chance that what they took wasn't illegal and I don't think anyone will ever know and that's why I don't think there'll ever be any totally satisfactory outcome to this saga and um, it got to a point with me and I think a lot of people where I, I just sort of I couldn't take any more you know it was sort of like well you know they they, they serve their suspensions they're back on deck you know, the, the, no doubt the ramifications for the club itself have been disastrous. And <clears throat> it's interesting that, you know, people like Mick Malthouse think the players involved are still being affected by it. It certainly had an impact on the um, the psyche of the club, I think. Like, for instance, last season, I, I think um, in a way that they were a bit soft in selection terms on some of the players who were returning from those bands, you know, because they felt a sort of moral obligation to give them every chance. You know, there were players who were kept on who, in ordinary circumstances, wouldn't have been. So that delays your list development. Um, I think it's made Essendon as a club more determined to be, you know, squeaky clean and and um, and sort of present this, uh, I, I don't know, politically correct sort of front. To the world, and and um, you know, that sort of goes against the grain of what they were doing. Um, you know, so the ramifications will be felt for years and years and years. But anyone who sort of wants some sort of categorical um, sort of proof of either guilt or innocence just isn't going to get it, it's just not going to happen unless, okay. unless, uh, well, unless Stephen Dank, you know, sort of has a. Um, uh, an epiphany and sort of, you know, decides to. I mean, he, for me, you know, in, in, if you ask me, I mean, he, he is so far and away the greatest villain of the whole saga. I mean, it was it was his baby. He didn't he didn't oversee the program properly. He then escaped sort of responsibility for clearing up the mess. Um, that was actually one of
0: my questions I'd written down. That. He's sprouted many times that he's got all this evidence to clear the plays and said so during all the trials, but has said nothing. Is he just bullshitting?
1: Yeah. Well, I think so. Surely. To be. Surely man... By
0: now. I mean, he's had his chance.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And and the damage is done. And and some enormous damage. I mean, EG, Mark Thompson and James Hurt. You know, you're talking about a guy who's got enormous, um, you know, enormous problems with his life and another bloke who was so um, affected by the whole thing that he actually flirted with ending his life. And, you know, I I don't care what anyone says about James Hurd. You know, even if you put the worst possible spin on it, and and I don't think many people suggest this either, and I don't think they should either, but, you know, Heard, I think, or you know, it was always very clear that whatever happened had to be within within the legal guidelines. So I haven't heard many people suggest that that's not true. That you know, he he actually deliberately, like say Lance Armstrong, set out to break the rules. But even if he had, what I'm saying is, even if he had done Lance Armstrong, the way the sort of the level of vitriol and and attention and scrutiny. Uh, and what's the word I'm looking for? Harassment, almost, that he was subjected to. We don't even do that to convicted murderers. You know, there are some convicted murderers in this country who we've made quasi-celebrities out of, you know, and and this guy, whatever he did, it wasn't nearly on that score, and yet there was a level of vitriol and um, just... Awful sort of behaviour directed towards him, so much so that even a guy as who had been as unflappable as he'd been um, was pushed to a point where he actually thought about taking his own life. And that's, you know, like it is. I find myself as I get older saying this more and more. You know, it's it's a game. You know, it's a it's a profession and it's a it's a high paying profession and it's really important to a lot of people, but it's a game. You know, it's not life or death. And whatever happened in that whole ugly, sordid story, um, you know, that sort of personal penalty that he almost ended up paying, it it surely didn't warrant that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Mark Thompson's personal problems are a direct result of that, but uh, certainly didn't help. And, you know, I think we're very... You know, we all love our footy and we're all, we're, we're all passionate about it. God knows I've been my whole lifetime, but, you know, some things are more important.
0: Absolutely. And that was probably one of the most disappointing features of the whole saga was seeing people like camping at his doorstep when they're trying to take their kids to school. Like no one needs to be put through that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> yeah, there just needed to be a bit more level of respect shown, I guess, to hurt and his family during that period of time.
1: Yeah, well, it's not, you know, I mean, it's it's happened in other cases, but um, not not to that level, I don't think, you know, for for what was done. I mean, it's sort of uh, the sort of vitriol and, and sort of pressure. I'm trying to think of a, a comparison in Australian history and the only other one I can sort of think of is someone like Lindy Chamberlain and most of the people who are listening to this probably – are too young to remember that, but, um, you know, the Lindy Chamberlain thing is sort of this felt like sort of the entire country was sort of rooting against her, you know, and, um, um, yeah, I don't think there's been very many cases at all where one individual has had to cope with that amount yeah. of, of hatred and, and, uh, and harassment, which a lot of it was, and, and yes, I'm talking about the media, the, the
0: last question on the saga before we push on the other stuff, Dr. Bruce Reed. do you think it's still controversial that he is still in the role he's in given that everyone else around him is now no longer there and he kind of oversaw <clears> a lot of it?
1: I understand why some people would be unhappy about the fact he is still there. Um, you know, I, I know Bruce and I've known him for a long time and I think he's a I think he's a wonderful guy, and I think he's a wonderful doctor, and I think he's a very ethical person. Um, you know, the argument against that sort of suggestion you're you're putting out there is that, um, you know, he challenged the AFL to take him to court on this stuff, and they backed down, which you could argue is a statement in itself that they, you know, weren't actually very confident in, in the case they'd mounted against him. Um, I think there's enough evidence there that he Tried to do the right thing, um, and I think again, and again, I'm speaking more broadly here, but there was a lot, there's a lot of sort of wisdom in hindsight with this thing. This really was uncharted territory. So for someone like Bruce, you know, all of a sudden you have this this sort of quote cutting edge unquote science, sports science program comes in, and he's sort of looking at it and going, well, "What's this about?" You know, and he was duped too. And he was given assurances when he did find out what was going on that, you know, the the guys driving the program would adhere to the guidelines he set, and they didn't. They flouted him again. So um, I guess it's that question of, you know, how much responsibility should someone bear when they have taken um, adequate steps to try to get things under control? So... I don't have an issue with him remaining in that position. I, I, I sort of understand the argument of some, but um, again, you know, having knowing the guy, um, I would I would vouch for him. You know, under any conditions, and I think he tried to do the right thing.
0: Fair enough. Bro. We'll leave it there for the the Essendon stuff. The, uh, the other hot topic that's come up for the last couple of years is the grand final time slot. Um, Gil's obviously flirted with the idea of shifting it to in the evening based <coughs> on the success of the Super Bowl and things like that. Where do yeah. you stand on the time slot for the grand final?
1: Oh, look, I'm a, I, I am a traditionalist. Um, not as rigidly um, as some people would insist. I mean, for instance, well, we talked before about zones. I'm prepared to sort of have a look at that. Um, I'm happy with them getting rid of the the umpires bouncing the footy. But to me, the the grand final start time is a bit of a sacred thing. I just think it's the most important day on the calendar. It's always been played in that time slot. Um, Why why is there a pressing need to move it? No one's ever been able to mount a strong enough argument to convince me that we should move the time slot. If it's purely because the entertainment would look better, that to me is just a ridiculous argument. You know, the entertainment is the grand final. It is the game. The game looks pretty good as it is. Um, I like footy played under the sun. You know, like people. someone said to me the other day, you know, everything, every sport looks better at night. I don't buy that. You know, I love going to the footy with the sun out and, and shining and, um, I think there's a real romance about when a grand final ends and, you know, as, as the sun is setting and you see the victorious team doing the lap of honour with the sun setting over the, the MCG and sort of drawing down the curtain on the season. If your argument is uh, higher TV ratings, I don't know how you actually quantify that. I don't know how you can actually say definitively, you know, X amount more people will watch if it's played at a twilight slot or an evening slot than a 2.30 slot. And again, my response to that would be, you know, if the game being on at 4.45 or 7.30 rather than 2.30 is enough to make you watch rather than not watch, are you really going to be a fan of the game anyway? Or are you just going to watch one game a year, the grand final? Um, If it's the higher tv ratings would attract greater advertising or whatever how much money do they need you know we've got massive broadcasting deal you know like there is enough money to go around you know is the extra amount which i'm saying is questionable anyway is it going to be that much more that it it makes it a no-brainer that we move it from the afternoon slot i think there's a lot of traditions around that time slot that uh an important part of the day, you know, the various breakfasts, the barbecues that that people put on and invite their family and friends around and they watch the game together. Um, I think the players, I I think, I don't know why I've left this one so late in the list, but the players don't want it. That, to me, is really important. Now, everyone says, we, we all know there's a lot of night footy and there's some really attractive night footy, but the players will tell you almost universally that ball handling is, as a rule, more difficult in twilight and night conditions because you get that colder atmosphere and you get dew and moisture on the ball. Um, That, to me, is a factor. You want the most important game of the year played in the best possible conditions. Now, it might be pissing down with rain during the afternoon anyway, so be it. But if you can maximise the chance of those best possible conditions existing by having it in the afternoon, you have it in the afternoon. And the fans, you know, look, maybe over time this will change. I'm sure the percentage will increase. But every poll I've seen about this, the majority of the public and certainly the majority of the players continually say they want it to stay where it is. So... That's enough of an argument for
0: me. Yeah, it definitely feels like it's the premise of it is based off the entertainment factor, like you said at the start, which I agree isn't really big enough grounds to warrant a shift of the game. Uh, but still sticking on to the grand final topic, there's been a bit of debate in the last few years, maybe more so amongst uh, club fans as opposed to the clubs themselves, that MCG tenant clubs have a, a legitimate advantage <laughs> over interstate clubs when it comes down to the to the grand final. Do you think that's yeah. a valid argument or do the interstate teams just have to kind of
1: suck it up? Oh, look, I think philosophically it's a very valid argument. Um, you know, we've got a national competition now and, um, you know, why should, if it, like Adelaide, for example, last year uh, qualified higher, why shouldn't they earn the right to post the grand final? I think philosophically it's pretty hard to dispute that. Having said that, um, I think the practical considerations, I mean, to me the most important of the game of the year should always be played in front of the biggest audience possible. And the fact is that we have one ground in Australia that holds more than a hundred thousand people. And the next highest capacity among the grounds where we play footy is 60,000. Now that's almost half as much. And I think the game should be able to be attended by as many people as possible. And I don't know, how you get around that one. Um and I guess look, again, the people saying that we, we need to be flexible about the the fixturing of it, that argument certainly has more weight given that in the last two years we have actually played a preliminary final at a stadium that only holds what, twenty five thousand people or whatever spotless holes. So it's getting harder and harder to pull that audience, live audience argument. Um, but it's, I mean, it's all a moot point now anyway, isn't it? Given that it's it's locked into, what, 2057? Yeah, yeah. There's no d- look, there's no doubt it's it's an advantage. I would say, however, that it was an advantage back in the VFL days too. You know, when Richmond won flags in 73, 74, they were playing then, uh, you know, how many games? Uh, 12, 13 games in the MCG and... Essendon or Collingwood or whatever might play too, you know. So it was the same then. So there were, there was a, there were Victorian teams at the same sort of disadvantage then that some of the non-Victorian teams are at now.
0: I suppose my biggest uh, bug there with it as well is nothing was really ever said when you look at how successful West Coast and Sydney were back in the early two thousands or Brisbane when they won the <coughs> in a row. It was never ever an issue, but now all of a sudden that a few Victorian teams have. Beating in the state teams, it just seems like it's become an issue all of a sudden.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, 01, 02, 03, Brisbane won all those flags against Victorian clubs. I guess people will say, well, they had some of the old Fitzroy supporters. There was a bit of a Victorian element there. People would say Sydney had the old South Melbourne people, so they had more support. But yeah, I mean, West Coast were able to win two flags there 25 years ago, weren't they? So uh, why is it suddenly any harder for them to win a flag on the G now? And particularly when you consider that, um, you know, going back to, well, 91, they were playing finals outside Victoria. But, you know, I remember the 1990 final series where West Coast travelled, I think, six weeks in a row. Um, They played their last two games away from home. Sorry, played one, their last home and away game away from home. They then had the um, qualifying final draw against Collingwood, came back for a replay, came back for a first semi, came back for a preliminary. There was a airline strike and they had to take a, a light plane. You know, it was like the Leyland brothers, you know, just getting here. So those obstacles have been overcome. I guess, you know, it's just part of, I, I suppose, of people wanting to see and even competition, which I get, you know, but there are there are that many ways in which it's not even, you know, the fixture isn't even. Um, how do you quantify evenness anyway in terms of the fixture? You know, like WA clubs have to travel, do a lot more travel than the Victorian clubs. However, they also get the advantage of playing at a ground where their rivals are unlikely to play it more than once a year. Yeah. You know, so it's a bit swings and roundabouts, but, uh, look, philosophically, I, I agree with the argument about the grand final, but it's not going to change.
0: Fair enough. And a few quick ones before we let you go. The the recent deal announced by the AFL to have Marvel Stadium taking over from Eddie <coughs> Your thoughts on, on that deal?
1: Uh, well, I can still remember when uh, Princess Park became Optus disabled back in 1993, and... Um, I was on the Sunday age then and we refused to call off disabled for quite some time and I think the daily age did as well and eventually we caved in but it's sort of like the I can remember then that our, our worry our stated worry was well what you know what about if the sponsor changes every five seconds and I mean Eddie Head's now moving on to its fourth name um, not as bad as Cadenia Park I mean they've been <laughs> what Shell Stadium, Baytech Stadium, uh, skilled Stadium, Simmons Stadium, now GMHBA
0: yeah.
1: Stadium. You know, it's sort of um, and the Marvel thing. Well, I don't know. I just find it sort of weird. You know, does it sort of cheapen the the whole thing a bit? Um, I don't know. It's just a weird one to get your head around. It. Look, ultimately, it doesn't. It doesn't make that much difference to anything really. But it does make me more. The more that that, um, venue names are changed dependent upon sponsors, the more it makes me sort of think why uh, don't more media outlets and people just sort of call it the generic name. So, you know, I I might just start calling it Docklands a bit more, um, as the ABC have done anyway, I think, over the years, you know. So, yeah, I understand the need for revenue and and stuff, but um, what happens if, you know, what if it hadn't been marvel that came to and what if it was i don't know what if it had been sexy land or something like that you know like i mean where do, where do you draw the line here
0: yeah it's yeah, it'd be interesting I, i'm i'm interested to see what they do with the activation part of it outside of the ground my main concern is that once fans enter the ground the focus <clears throat> needs to be 100 percent on the football and not about marvel so as long as they can keep that separated, it should hopefully work okay. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, and look, you know, AFL fans are smarter than people think. I mean, the 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 sort of attempts at fan engagement, by and large, have been pretty dismal, haven't they? You know, like I mean, they seem to, they, and they never seem to listen to what the fans say yeah. themselves, which is that the ads are too, you know, the, all the PA stuff is way too loud, and we don't need to see you know people running around the boundary or kiss cam or that sort of stuff you know like i mean what's wrong with just sitting there and talking to your mates or your family for 5 minutes yeah, you know exactly maybe right. that's maybe that's a symptom of me getting old you know actually <laughs> pine for a bit more peace and quiet as i get older
0: uh, shifting the focus to the media just quickly, um, it's obviously very prominent these days with Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Do you feel the media should be held a bit more to account by players in particular if something's incorrectly reported about them or does the modern landscape not really allow for players to express themselves and
1: fight back? Um, oh, look, I think the, the modern landscape's probably made it more, um, or made it a bit easier for them to do that because they can use their own platforms to, you know, put their side of the story out now, be it social media or even things like, um, you know, Players Voice, that, that website that's sort of AFLPA-driven and um, players sort of telling their own stories and cutting out the middleman, if you like. So um, I think there's an argument that they've probably got more recourse to correct uh, inaccuracies and, and stuff like that. But I, I find... Um, yeah, there's probably, there's probably less accountability now in uh, across the media. But that, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's even a deliberate thing. I, I think it's more a consequence of fewer resources in major media organisations and greater pressures in terms of the constant demand for news. You know, the I mean, newspapers, for example, are basically round the clock operations now. And even 10 years ago, they weren't. Um, so that I can tell you you know the pressures on um, journalists now are so much greater than they were because there's fewer of them and um, they're being asked to do a lot more work which means that and there's fewer checks and balances so um, you see more mistakes made um, be it errors of fact or errors of Uh, you know, literacy and, and, you know, the number of literals and stuff in the papers now makes me gasp at times, you know. It's it's bloody awful sometimes. But um, the accuracy thing, there are just fewer checks and balances and uh, that can be very dangerous. And that pressure in a a time sense, you know, getting stuff up immediately online um, carries with it a greater risk that people will make mistakes. Um, You know, and look, I... I know journos aren't sort of flavour of the month with a lot of people, but I, I do honestly think that people, as a rule, you know, people who cover football in the media are decent people. And, you know, I don't think they're necessarily as calculated and manipulative and conniving as some people would have you believe. I'm not saying it, it doesn't happen and there aren't people who do some pretty ordinary things, Um you know, it depends what your priorities are. And I've always felt a bit lucky, I suppose. I, uh, a long time ago now, I, I sort of was always drawn more towards talking and, and writing about the game itself rather than the politics or the the sort of scandal, the scandalous element or, you know, controversy. To me, the game is sort of the number one thing. And I've been – that's allowed me in a way too often – not have to tread in those very dangerous waters where you're you're writing stuff that people don't want you to write and and you're writing often very damaging stuff or hurtful stuff and that people are are upset by that. I mean, the things I tend to upset people with now are saying that, you know, um, know, so this this team's better than that team, you know. (laughs) It's still... As it's I get opinion older, rather than just yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it still upsets people. I mean, I'm you know like some of the stuff on Twitter, uh, you know. Well, I I lead with my chin a bit on Twitter, admittedly, but um, you know it still sort of amazes me a bit just the level people the, the the extent to which people will become upset just by you thinking their team's not particularly good. You know, like, yeah. again, again, it's a game it's exactly
0: and like you are you you put yourself out there on social media and it's credit to you and you must come across some um keyboard warriors how do you deal with that
1: (laughs) oh pretty badly (laughs) Um, oh look you know when i say pretty badly i mean probably not uh very um you know like the i guess the what most people would probably do is either ignore them or you know block them or whatever and i i tend to sort of fight fire with fire a bit because i do have this thing i I do have this view that okay i'm in the media but why does that you know why should why does that sort of give someone uh license to just have a free swing or if you're going to have a free swing well you know if you're going to come out and call me a fat bastard and whatever well why shouldn't i call you whatever i want to call you but the number of times people sort of have a crack at you you have a crack back and they say oh yeah what so you can't take it well yeah, I can take it. Why can't you take it? You know, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess in that respect, I've always sort of, um, you know, I, I've probably, in some ways, I've got the same sensibilities as a rank-and-file footy fan, I suppose, because that's, that's why I ended up in the business. So, you know, I grew up a, a, a mad footy fan obsessed with the game and a supporter of a club and loving the game and being passionate about it and the opportunity to, pursue that professionally has been an incredible experience that I'd never trade for anything, but it, it's, um, I guess, you know, like maybe that's one difference between me and, um, a lot of people maybe these days in the footy media that, um, they're, they're journalists first and foremost, and, and football is just the area in which they, um, conduct that profession. Whereas I, I think at some stage I became someone who was involved in football first and foremost, and the journalism was just a means to an end, if that makes sense. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love journalism and I love the media, um, but I love football more, you know? So I I, I don't know. Look, I, I like to think that I've, I've um, conducted myself, you know, reasonably honourably over the years. I, I'm happy to say I, i've you know almost universally had pretty good relationships with virtually everyone in the game you know you obviously you'll have clashes with people but i've never had a sort of you know lifelong war with anyone in football and um you know i, I like to think i've got really good sort of respectful relationships with key people in the game the coaches and and players and officials and whatever and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that, again, I like to think this, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I think people, I'd hope that people, um, you know, when they read my stuff or listen to me or whatever, can see that I'm someone who loves the game um, and that 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 passion comes through. and, And that's why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it because I want to break a big story or I want to push this particular agenda. I'm involved because I love footy and i love writing about it and i love talking about it and i love watching it you know yeah, and that's that's the primary motivation
0: yeah and that's why a lot of people love the work that you do because it is it, it's all it's all a passion of yours and um you don't mind interacting with the the normal fans and i think people respect that highly as well uh one last question before you, let you go it's, it's probably a, a tough one to tip but who's your grand final tip for this year
1: Oh, geez, I haven't even uh, – well, no, I, I haven't thought about it for a fair while. Um, okay, so we're saying as of round 10, right? So yep. uh, I won't be held to this because there's a lot of water <laughs> to go under the bridge. Look, if you're asking me to tip the grand final now, it'd be pretty hard to go past a, a West Coast Richmond grand final, I think. I mean, they've for me, they've been the, the two – most reliable teams And the two most impressive teams um, You know Yes, Richmond have had A couple of setbacks um, West Coast have only had the one I, I suppose West Coast have had The most consistent form but I mean Richmond's got the the score on the board um, And you know We know um, they, can, they can play better than they've played The last couple of weeks certainly um, And that Formula which was so effective Last year I don't think there's any evidence That that's any less Effective this year Um, Look I'm a And I did tip them to win the flag last year I'm, I'm still a bit of a rap for Adelaide You know I think they've done Pretty well to Win as many games as they have given the amount Of injuries to key players so I think I think they're going to get better As those important Players come back into the mix Um, people will say about them, and they'll say this, people will say about West Coast, you know, they can't win at the MCG. People will say about Adelaide, oh, they fold on the big occasion. Well, Adelaide was certainly pretty ordinary on grand final day, but they weren't a team, if you have a look at their record through the year and you have a look at the the stats and whatever, they weren't a soft team. You know, they, they, they won... You know, as much contest if have got more contestable than everyone. They won clearances. You know, they did all those hard things. They they had a particularly bad day on the day they could least afford it, and that happens. But I think their best footy is a really really high level. Um, and you know, whilst we're talking about other teams, I'd, I'd never I'd never really write the Swans off. They have an amazing level of consistency and a capacity to um, to get it right when it matters. So. Um, and then, yeah, I better not keep this going. I'll end up mentioning every side. But I have look, I have been impressed with um, the level Melbourne's been able to reach in, in recent weeks. And they were playing against an injury-hit Adelaide. But there's something about them. They've got, you know, a very hard-at-it midfield. But there's something very slick about them as well. And I like the the number of forward options they've got and the spread of goal kicking. That said um you're talking about a side that hasn't played finals for 12 years um that's always tough um you know their history says they're not necessarily that reliable you know do you need to be up there for a couple of years before you can win a flag well maybe but you know the bulldogs probably weren't um richmond probably weren't so maybe the rules have been rewritten on that but yeah, look, right at the moment, I'd be happy with a, a grand final matchup of West Coast Richmond, I reckon. It's
0: definitely an open race, and all those teams you mentioned, uh, just as much a chance to make <clears> it than anyone else. So, should be a, a very entertaining back half of the year. So, Rowan, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time tonight. Really appreciate talking football with you, and uh, thanks heaps for coming on.
1: No, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it.